Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated Books on Cinema. Hi everybody, my name's John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Peter Bradshaw who is a film critic for The Guardian, as most of you will already know, and is also the author of a new book, The Films That Made Me, uh, which is a collection of his criticism over the years and it also has a great introduction and some great introductions to the sections as well, which, which sort of put into context how cinema has affected him over the years the conversation's great and we talk about a heck of a lot of stuff so i'm just gonna let that that let that speak for itself remember if you like the episode please share on the social media uh, you can follow me on twitter at dr jonty d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that just enjoy the conversation The way I got into journalism and all film journalism is basically a, a very happy accident, happy for me anyway. I did a an English degree. I did a straight up English literature degree of the sort that people don't do anymore. Right. <laughs> people don't want to do English literature anymore. It's like telling students, you know, do you want to study basket weaving or something like that? It's considered to be... I mean, when I was when I was in my teens and twenties, this is years and years ago, of course, doing studying English literature was a completely straight up. I mean, it was a plank of the of the sort of university school system and a plank of the A level system. But now, of course, it's 
it's actually in more you're more likely to study film in a way than English literature. Mm. I say that that's my entirely impressionistic view. I have no facts of this whatsoever, but I feel that anyway. Where were we? I was studying English literature. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I wanted to study film a bit more at the time. This was Cambridge in the 1980s, and there there was no provision for studying film at Cambridge then as now. Nowadays at Cambridge, you can you can do an MA in film theory. I think film a very rarefied film sort of theoretically inflected. MA course, interestingly run by the modern languages department, because I think Cambridge still regards it as a, a sort of very suspicious continental thing to want to do. Uh, but there were a few courses run by a, 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 a lecturer called Stephen Heath, uh, who was at that stage was the center of a huge row about um, critical theory and structuralism and deconstruction, along with Colin McCabe, who of course went on after that to be a great panjundrum at the British Film Institute. Anyway, I did English literature and then I moved even further away from film. I, uh, I, I did a PhD on uh, Renaissance English literature, which rendered me, as people commented at the time, more unemployable than ever. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy and uh, looking back on it and sometimes in a spirit of masochism I try to reread my thesis in those days which is a, a masterpiece of what Kingsley Amis called pseudo light being cast on non-problems. <laughs> it reminds I mean, me it reminds me of that Groundhog Day that scene where uh, Andy McDowell says that she studied French poetry and Bill Murray goes why? <laughs> <laughs> just sort of laughs in her face and then yeah. obviously a few days later when he's worked it out he quotes some Baudelaire to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's basically I did the Bill Murray laugh in my face kind of every day in the mirror and it got less and less funny. Anyway, I, I did it. I mean I completed my PhD within within like three and a half years which at those days was considered very good going. I mean, people would spend decades on their PhDs in those days before the universities became much stricter and more commercialized. Anyway, I did that. And then I literally, I kind of was, was utterly at a loss to know what to do, utterly right. at a loss. Um, I applied for jobs kind of everywhere, straight up jobs, almost like jobs shelf stacking at Tesco. I was so depressed. And I took a job uh, basically in journalism because I thought, well, journalism is a place for a, a, a square peg for a square, a square hole for a square peg like me or mm. at any rate a, a round hole for a square peg but a round hole that I could sort of jam myself into and so I I took jobs uh, sort of freelance journalism jobs and I got a job with the of all things really the evening standard which um looking back on that looking back on that job with the evening standard I I have mixed feelings about it it was a, a rum old newspaper in a way but Weirdly, it did have space for me, waifs and strays, people like me, and I was allowed to write almost about anything I wanted. I had, I, I was in a way more of a political journalist in those days. I was a kind of slightly kind of bland, liberal, pro-European journalist at a time when that was, I don't know, just about as fashionable or unfashionable as it is now. Uh, I did that for a long time at the Evening Standard throughout the 1990s. I, I got a staff job mm. uh, and I was doing pretty well. And then 
a very bizarre accidental thing happened, which which was that I was sued by the late Tory MP Alan Clark. Uh, this is oh, a very of, of the Alan Clark Diaries fame. Alan Clark Diaries, yes, exactly. It was a really weird thing. I was in a, in a spirit of raillery, as we say, in a spirit of you know not terribly scornful satire. I was doing a pastiche of his diaries in the Evening Standard, and he got very very cross and sued. And the Evening Standard editor of those days, Max Hastings, the formidable uh, military historian Max Hastings, thought it would be hilarious if we defended this case instead of just settling, which is mm. what newspapers obviously would do with anything else. Um, and the case went to court and I achieved a kind of 10 and the sort of seven microseconds of mini fame as the author of this spoof. And it amused a couple of people at The Guardian, basically. Um, right. Uh, the guy, the people that it amused were Ian Katz, who in those days was a very senior author, a senior editor at The Guardian. Now he's in charge of Channel 4 in the UK. And Alan Rusbridger, who at that stage was the was the editor. And they were looking for a completely left field new choice to be the film critic after the retirement of the legendary Derek Malcolm. Mm. And they just completely reached out to me. And this was a complete leap in the dark on their part and they completely took a massive gamble because I'd written a little I don't I've written a bit about movies but frankly I hadn't written a huge amount mm. uh, I'd written you know this that and the other I'd done a few interviews with with uh, with actors I I I I really didn't have that much of a profile writing about or any sort of a profile writing about cinema but they they reached out to me and I mean I'll never forget it Alan Rusbridger literally called me, cold called me at the office in the Standard. And he just said, would you like to be the film critic? And I think he was expecting me to play it very cool and to say, you know, well, I'll have to think about it, blah, blah, blah. But I almost shouted the word yes before he'd finished the word, before he'd finished the sentence. And that was it. It was just, I bit his hand off for this amazing opportunity. And never a day goes by without me blessing that day and blessing that extraordinary stroke of luck that he was going to, give me what amounted to was one of the best jobs, perhaps the best job in British Fleet Street. I mean, it was mind blowing to me that I'd got this opportunity. And so I just threw myself straight into it. And that was, golly, that was a long, I keep thinking this was a few, this is 20 years ago. Um, mm. And I, I, I just thought this is amazing. I've got the opportunity to write professionally about something that I love, and to cultivate that, cultivate my, my appreciation of cinema, to cultivate my own profile as a writer. And I think also to keep learning because mm. I'd never got out of thinking myself, I think you appreciate this, John, as a student, a PhD student, at a, as, a, as a formative time in my life, I loves me a reading list. I just, I kind of, the idea of a bibliography, a reading list, I think, wow, that's great. And I'd, I almost, I've never lost my love for that. And I've never lost the idea that a, a, a film critic is a student in a way. A film critic is a student. And it's not merely the weirdly school-like professional experience of kind of filing into a screening theater in the way that you used to file into a classroom, basically. <laughs> it is weirdly, it is as, as professional experiences go, it is the one that's weirdly most like school. but. I, I will be at school without any of the grief and all of the joy, basically. 
And I, I think that's quite an important thing. Uh, sometimes critics either implicitly or explicitly affect an air of utter, utter omniscience about what they're talking about. Mm. Uh, and certainly say you have to do that. You have to, you have to write from a position of strength. Uh, but also I think you have to realize that you are learning all the time. Every day that goes past, you're learning, learning, learning. And I think that is, that is an important part of it, I think, in a way. And I think, uh, I think readers will respond to that, respond to some measure of, if not humility exactly, then realism. I mean, also, you're sort of like on the front line of film criticisms. You're, you're getting the movies arriving and, and you're, you're getting a, a bite of the apple before anybody else has. And it's, yeah. it's, there has to be a degree of humility to that because you don't have the benefit of watching it six months down the line and it, it's yeah. already established its position in, yeah. in the world. No, no, you don't know what that, and to be totally cynical about it, you don't know what you're supposed to think, you see, this is it. You have to, you have to, you have to go out on a limb uh, and if, if it turns out that your view, completely honestly held, sincerely held, turns out to be a, a real minority opinion, you kind of have to stick to your guns. Uh, <laughs> and film critics are one of the very few, the very few critics who are forced to take responsibility. They are forced to have the courage of their convictions. Very few journalists have to do this. Most journalists or writers in any sphere whatsoever, they can very quietly and very cunningly get the lie of the land. We can't. We yeah, can't. Yeah. We what? can't give it a film and we have to write about it sort of straight away. Now, there are some critics who perhaps they're going to fess up to it and perhaps they won't. They can sort of leave it a little bit and sort of say, oh, yeah, hang on. This seems to be, you know, there, there's some there's something there that I didn't see at first. Some 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 terrible insult, some terrible aspect of something that's problematic. And oh, I don't think I would have seen that at first, but I will write as if, of course, I've seen it. Now, film critics can't usually can't do it. Most some film critics, but film critics who are especially if you're seeing it for the very first time at a festival, say. you are. Mm. I mean, this is what makes the job so exciting, especially at somewhere like Cannes, where you're going to be shown some film and you literally have no idea what it's about. And it brings it home to you how you, you basically, when you, when you see a film, you usually have some idea what it's about and you have some idea what the, 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 the critical or evaluative consensus is. But very often, you know, especially at the festival, you, you don't and you have to, you have to kind of gird your loins and you have to have the courage of your convictions. And it's, um, it's very bracing in a way. When you first uh, got that, jo that phone call from, from Alan, did you, did you sort of run home and sort of start writing out a list of movies that you've, you, you, have, you have to catch up on in order to... Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I kind of did. I was sort of, I mean, I still do. I mean, I still panic that I haven't seen. And you've realised part of, I don't know, part of getting older is that you realise that you're never going to see it all. I mean, it's just, again, that's the other weird thing about film criticism is if you, let's say you've been doing the job for five years, cinema has been in existence for like 100. So you have covered 5% of the entire history of the medium. It's like being a literary critic for about 400 years. It's just, or whatever it is. It's an amazing, vast array of stuff. And again, a film critic is unusual in that they are expected to kind of know or basically know about everything. 
in a way that no <laughs> no other journalist is, no no other writer or critic is. I mean, no other no other. I mean, a literary critic is not expected to sort of know everything about Estonian literature, but you are kind of expected to to sort of have it uh, in your wheelhouse in a way as a as a film critic. But as I say, I I like the rest of us. I kind of laugh at all this, but it, it is stimulating and, and amazing and thrilling that 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 is that is the opportunity, the amazing opportunity that you're being given. But yeah, I mean, when I I kind of gibbered with a mixture of jubilation and panic that I was gonna have to be, I was gonna have to, you know, be on top of all this. And fortunately for me, it was sort of happening a little bit before the era of social media when some of my kind of missteps would not be brutally hammered in the way that they would be now. I mean, they were pretty brutally hammered. At the, the time there was some, the, uh, the Guardian, which was at, the forefront of interaction, what used to be known in those days as Web 2.0, of basically the public being allowed to talk back to <laughs> the journalists. Um, what, what, could what could possibly what go wrong? Possibly go wrong. There was something called the talk boards. Uh, the Guardian in those days had a, a, a page called Guardian Unlimited, the talk boards. And I was regularly absolutely hammered on that. Absolutely hammered. More, more hammered more badly than than on regular below the line comments. Although of course you get pretty ha hammered there as well. But, and I think in the, in the years that have gone by since then, I think there's a kind of truce has, uh, a truce has sort of settled in in a way between, between critics and, and commentators. It's, it, you know, we've kind of got used to each other and it's, it's, less, it's less acrimonious in a way. The acrimony has of course long ago migrated to Twitter. Uh, actual worrying about below the line comments is very passe now than the you know the 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 artillery the warfare the trench warfare has of course it's very bad taste to talk about these metaphors and just about now but they that has migrated to twitter you've called your uh your book uh, the movies that made me and oh, so Sorry, the films that made me. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, essential, an essential difference. <laughs> Unforgettable title. Yeah. There's actually, a, I mean, it's an old gag. There is, uh, there, 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 I think there are two programs, one on radio and one on Netflix, I think, called The Movies That Made Me. But yeah, it's, it, I, to my chagrin, I realised that, that that joke or that play on words, the movies, the films that made me laugh, the movies that made me scared, blah, 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 the movies that made me, that sadly is not, I didn't invent that joke. So, so what are the formative films, even before you became a critic, that, that sort of informed your love of cinema and, uh, you know, gave you that um, uh, sort of sort of made the idea of being the Guardian film critic the dream job? Well, I mean, the, there are a number of answers I can give to this, but they're all very hackneyed and you've heard about a thousand times before, but I'll tell you anyway. One was seeing Scorsese's Raging Bull at the old screen on the hill. Um, on Haverstock Hill in Belsize Park in North London. I, I was about, I think about 18 or 19 years old. I'd been inspired to see it by an amazing review by a critic who isn't talked about as much as she should be, as Judith Williamson, mm. who was writing in those days for the old City Limits magazine, who wrote a passionate and brilliant piece, short piece, but passionate and absolutely compelling uh, review of, of Raging Bull from a feminist point of view, uh, or the, her view of 
Jake LaMotta holding on to the male attitudes which were dragging him down, uh, like a drowning man holding on to, uh, you know, a life belt that's made of lead, basically, as it drags him down. Uh, I was inspired to see the movie uh, because of that. And I'll never forget how my mind was totally blown. Uh, and I'll never forget the way I felt when I kind of staggered back out into the streets afterward, a mixture of being utterly exhausted, physically drained, as if I just played 10 sets of tennis, mm. but also an amazing sense of, a, of, of strength, of as if I'd just taken kind of cocaine or something. I felt as if I could pick up a bus and throw it across Hampstead Heath. I felt like I sort of the Incredible Hulk. I could do anything. I could sort of, I could, I could wrench um, a bus stop out of its concrete settings. I felt I could do anything. At the same time, I felt as if I needed to check into hospital and be hospitalized for, for two months. It was amazing to me, absolutely amazing. And I couldn't, if you'd asked me why exactly, why? It's just the, the profoundly mysterious, uh, uh, almost pageant of events in Jake LaMotta's life from his youth to his age. Uh, and it was the fact that he, he did not seem to have learned anything. He did not seem to have grown or become that interested, that more morally profound a figure in a way that we are still encouraged to think has to be the narrative arc of all Hollywood movies. He hadn't, he hadn't really overcome any obstacles. He hadn't surmounted anything. He hadn't really learned anything. All he did at the very end of his life was did, did do this cheesy sub-brand and nightclub act where he did an impression of uh, Brando uh, on, in, on, on the waterfront, along with everybody else, including, <laughs> I love this, the, the, the things he does are Paddy Chayefsky and Shakespeare. And I'd love to hear <laughs> De Niro. I don't, I, it's a shame. I wonder if Scorsese has got any outtakes of De Niro as Jake LaMotta doing Shakespeare. It would be amazing. Uh, it was just the fact that he carried on and then there was the, the biblical quote at the end about redemption. But, and I found that amazingly moving. And yet he didn't seem to be particularly redeemed. And the stunning reunion scene with his brother Joey, played by Joe Pesci, is a masterpiece of nothing happening at all. They don't hug. Joe Pesci just, Joey just looks bored and irritated to see his brother again after all these years. It means absolutely nothing at all to him. And yet, despite the lack of these uh, emotional pointers, despite the lack of affect, just simply the, I think it's something in the editing of it, something in the way Thelma Schumacher achieved in this, uh, this parade, this, as I say, I think almost like a pageant of scenes in the life, the kind of epic theater aspect of Raging Bull, just overwhelmed me. It overwhelms me now, thinking about it now, talking about it now. And you get extra points for uh, using Marvel comic metaphors in your reaction to. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I loved, I loved, I loved Marvel at the time. It, the interesting thing about relationship with Marvel, when I was eleven years old, I collected Spy. I mean, I was, I was out there buying the first UK edition of Spider-Man Comics Weekly, uh, which, after all, I, I threw away, which is a stupid thing for me to do because I don't have a pension. So if I, <laughs> if I kept them. If I kept them. I could have, you know, I don't have to worry about being poor, um, but I didn't. I was never, a, I was never a Marvel fanatic, mm. but I loved. Uh, I but I was one of the people that loved Spider Man in the in the in the initial UK with the uh, Thor Spider Man and Thor. I I I I loved it, and I kind of 
I saw that it was cinematic. And of course, as everybody says now, it's taken this long for the movies to develop their CGI. Basically, so you don't have to have wrinkly kind of spandex. It doesn't have to wrinkle. Now you can do it digitally. It's taken this long for the films in a way to catch up with Marvel. I, I'm not one of those people that complains about superhero films at, at all. I love superhero films. Um, I think they're the Westerns of our, our age. They're as formulaic. And, you know, you can get bored of that. You can get bored with any other kind of genre. But um, there were plenty of bad Westerns. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, there, but there were loads of. I mean, westerns. There were, there were. I suppose what we now call landfill westerns. There were just a colossal amount of westerns, and a colossal, and of course on TV, the, the, the again when I was growing up, westerns were, westerns were a staple of TV, TV show, western movies and western TV shows. Yeah, I remember, you know, Bonanza and High Chaparral and all of those. Yeah, uh, all those things. Yes, exactly. What they meant to us kids growing up in the. British home counties, God only knows, uh, but we accepted it as a, as a, as a lingua franca of, of storytelling. Western. Yeah, I mean, Champion the Wonder Horse, I remember watching yeah. that on, on, <laughs> relentlessly. It was, it was always on in the morning. Yeah, we used to love it. Uh, and we, again, it was like, we, it was like watching Star Trek. Of course, we had no idea of what these things, what, what it was like being on, as a crew member on the USS Enterprise. It's like being, uh, you know, uh, at the bunkhouse in the Chaparral. It was completely alien to us, but we accepted it. We, you know, we, we got, we took what we were given in those days. I remember, I mean, I um, live on the Northwest. I, I grew up on the Northwest uh, coast of Cumbria. And we, I used to look out on the uh, houses right by the sea. So we had this view of the sea and the sun would go down and the Isle of had wonderful sunsets, and the Isle of Man would 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 stand out against the setting sun, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And I remember when I saw Star Wars, and I saw Luke looking at those two suns. Yeah, I just thought that's it. That's me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm watching this in yeah. Baron Furnace for crying yeah. out loud, which is you know, if there's a center to the universe, I'm as far away as as possible yeah. from it. So I I remember relating to that that elsewhere that cinema was giving me very much. Yeah, I mean, I remember. This kind of connects with one of my other great cinematic moments. It's obviously, I mean, I, when I was 15, I went to the United States for the first time, uh, which is still one of the most, again, another mind-blowing experience in my life. This, this uh, connected me with popular culture and with the wellspring of what I realized was the source of the popular culture I've been, I've been kind of consuming uncritically for the last 15 years of my life, basically one of the most amazing experiences and it's still incredible it's still gastronomically it's still the most incredible experience of my life it's going to a proper burger joint for the first time mm. because all that in the uk there was something called the wimpy bar where you were served a sort of burger made of creosote on a plate that you had to eat with a knife and fork it was terrible but we went we, it was in massachusetts we went to a a burger king and i was got a proper cheeseburger with with pickles and ice cold coca-cola again eccentric because in those days the uk did not consider it normal to refrigerate drinks and i just bit into it and i thought that is I, i've just been taken up to a new level of what you're supposed to feel like when you eat something basically i mean i've been to loads of posh restaurants since then but i don't think i've ever experienced since then the kind of quantum leap of enjoyment as i had then <laughs> the other thing why well, i don't know quite how i've got onto this track 
But the other thing was for the first time I saw Star Wars and I was extremely pleased with myself because I was seeing Star Wars before any of my friends because in the summer of 77, it hadn't come out in the UK yet. Right, yeah. I was seeing it with my American cousins and I just thought it was mind blowing. And my mind was sort of furthermore blown about Alec Guinness being in it because the other great experience of my life was seeing, uh, I guess the Ealing comedies generally, but for me, one of the most perfect films, formerly perfect film I've ever seen is Kind Hearts and Coronets, uh, of course, starring Alec Guinness in all those roles. And it sort of did my head in that I knew that Alec Guinness was 30 years, 40 years younger in that film. But of course, he was playing an array of characters who were sort of the same age as Ben Kenobi. Uh, and I thought, my God, Ben Kenobi is like another character that he's playing from Kind Hearts and Coronets, another mysterious old character with fathomless wisdom and strategic depth, amazingly. He's like another character that he's playing. Maybe there is another Alec Guinness who in fact does not look young or old, but is a kind of creature from another planet impersonating all these characters, amazing. And I still, I still think that Kind Hearts and Coronets is a beautiful film. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect film. It's one of these uh, movies in the, in the British film industry where everything comes together, particularly particularly the, the fusion of tragedy and seriousness and suspense thrillers with comedy. And sometimes I feel, even with the great Ealing comedies, that the, 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 the comedy aspect of it is a little bit knockabout for me. Mm. Uh, get it. It's almost um, something we've inherited in a way, all the way from Shakespeare, the idea of a comedy interlude in the middle of something very serious. That, that's something we've inherited for over something from 400 years ago. And I think it fuses most perfectly in, in Robert Hamer's Kind Hearts and Coronets. It's a lovely film, but as I say, that's in a way one of my, one of my key cinematic experiences as a, as a teenager is seeing Star Wars and realizing that, is it really true that Ben Kenobi is in this film? Maybe he is a, the lost member of the Dascoin family, the most, the most extraordinary member of the Dascoin family was withheld from us for 30 years and now he is here. Amazing. Nin 1977. I, w I saw it in in England. Uh, it was I, I. I'm guessing that it was the first film I ever saw at the cinema because I, I can't believe I would have been, I've been taken to see anything before that. I certainly don't have any memory of anything before that. But because there was only Star Wars, you you, you know there wasn't Star Wars two yet for a few years. It wasn't even on television. Um, I found that anybody who was related to Star Wars, I would watch this. You know, I would like oh Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. That's got you know, Ben yeah. Kenobi in it. So I've got to watch yeah, that. Yeah. And I've got to watch, you know, all those sort of quite terrible Harrison Ford films like Hanover Square and uh, Force <laughs> 10 from Navarone and all these. Yeah. Like, so by association, you would watch all, all around it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still, every time I watch Apocalypse Now, I think, I think, oh my God, Harrison Ford is in this. I forgot that. I can watch it over and over again on a sort of groundhog day thinking, fuck, isn't that Harrison Ford? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, you've now thought that to yourself about eight times. That's Harrison Ford is in that. Is, is he in that? Oh, crass, he is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, love those, <laughs> I love those interviews, those Parkinson interviews where Alec Guinness talks about the fact that he just talks about, yeah, I don't know, this silly little film. <laughs> but I made it. He always talks about, I love it. It's one of the very few actors who talks about how much money he made out of it. He had to kind of bully George Lucas into 
giving him whatever it was, 1% of the gross or 2% or 5%, whatever it is, whatever it was. I think the story was he gave him a percentage and then... Um, he forgot about it, didn't he? Or he, sort of played it down. No, he said, he, he, apparently he sent him a message saying, oh, I've, it's really it's really done a lot better than I thought it would. You know, it looks quite good. And he, he sort of said, I'll give you another percentage point. And that, for Guinness, that meant like, like yeah. he was financially secure for the rest yeah. of his life. You know? I think he earned about... I think he earned about £250,000 a year for the, until that moment to the end of his life. Just so He could have retired just on the Star Wars money, but he actually worked quite hard. Uh, but yes, again, I, I, it, in a way, it took a sort of Englishman who was simultaneously very worldly about this sort of thing, but also very naive in the way that he was at the very last... No, no Hollywood actor would talk in those terms. Not Certainly not, even not a Brit. You'd have to... <laughs> The, the nearest thing you've ever come to is someone like Rupert Everett or Hugh Grant, people who are kind of, people who have a, a kind of streak of not caring. Uh, mm. And that's the way what Alec Guinness sort of had in the way that he thought in his heart, he thought this Hollywood nonsense, not really what he was, but he was, you know, he did it with, you know, good grace and he thought it was very amusing, but it wouldn't have surprised him to hear that Star Wars had done very badly and just vanished, but it wouldn't have surprised him or interested him in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I'm re I'm reminded of, I think Maggie Smith, who asked, she periodically asks what she th thinks of of uh, Downton Abbey, and she just says, says, "I don't know, I've never seen it." <laughs> <laughs> she literally, just say like that. Yes, I've never seen it. I've got a box set somewhere. I must get around to it. <laughs> I saw uh, like Ray Fiennes. I'm not sure if they're showing this in England, but I saw it in Italy that they're showing it. They were showing a trailer for The Kingsman. And it had like yeah. almost like making of footage yeah. at the trailer where they're going, oh, yes, Matthew Vaughan's vision is uh, unique and it's a very exciting story. But I keep remembering being interviewed for um, the Harry Potter films and talking about Voldemort and saying, I haven't got a clue what this is. I just wave my hand around occasionally yeah. to say the line. There are very few actors in a way who are sort of detached enough. In a way, it has to be the Brits because they, they, they know they're being hired anyway for sort of what they are. That they, but there's a younger generation. I think, in a way, of people almost sort of traumatized by the fact that they can't say out loud what they think, especially people who've been in superhero films. And mm. they, they, I mean, people like I suspect, I mean, Andrew Garfield, I think only now is coming to terms with the fact that, oh my God, he had to do this. It was like working for a factory. I mean, you know, the, we don't particularly feel sorry for Andrew Garfield, who made a fortune from being Spider Man, but. There are, there are sort of road of actors who you forget in a way you can't say out loud what you think, particularly when you're working for a, you know, working for a corporate machine. Well, there seems to be a narrative around film, the whole film that, you know, it's not just playing the role. You're doing the publicity, you're doing the junkets yeah. and, you're, and you're sort of creating. I mean, I was struck by, well, just to stay on Garfield for a moment, uh, you know, during the run up to Tick, Tick Boom. Yeah, I think yeah, I keep calling it TikTok Boom, and that would be a yeah. stupid title. Whereas Tick Tick Boom is a perfect yeah. title. Um, yeah. You know, it was all this stuff about honouring uh, the the real life person who the who the film is based on, Jonathan. Jonathan Larson, yeah. And it was just there was just an element that was so. Um, it felt like another part of his performance. I mean, I'm sure it was sincere and everything, but yeah. it just felt so sort of curated and and you oh. know. I think so. I think you have to you have to sell the public the entire package. They have to buy into the whole thing. And I think what's required of of the actor, in a way, is that absolute commitment in the, that they are selling, they are selling you their own input, not merely the the, the technique or the accomplishment of, of your your 
your impersonation of a particular character. Um, I mean, I think interviews with stars have evolved away from that. There was a time when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, an interview with an interview with an actor would spend more time talking about their lives and their technique and their thing, and all the other things that they were doing. And now I suspect it's more about how utterly they identify with their character. They kind of have to, they have to provide a kind of what amounts to an outtake as their character in the EPK, the electronic. Mm. We, I mean, as journalists, we kind of go along with this. We uh, behave as if we are interviewing somebody who is, their representative on earth in a way um <laughs> christ's representative on earth like a priest um that's that's another sort of bizarre thing that happens in 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 interviews uh and sometimes it snaps sometimes what happens is that interviews go on all day every day and the the actors have to maximize their time with interviewers and they do they do interviews all day from 8 a.m. Till, till whatever it's 10 p.m. at night. They forget who it is they're talking to. They forget what it is they've said. And sometimes in a way, just not out of diva-ish scorn or petulance, just in a way that they just can't keep up a strenuous job. They snap and say what's actually happening in their head. And what's what happening when someone like Daniel Craig sort of says, oh Christ, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. That's what he means. He almost doesn't mean I don't like James Bond anymore. He means I don't want to do this 25 hours a day job of pretending to be. And someone like Liam Neeson, who in a way kind of talking in his sleep started telling how he went looking for black people to beat up. It was utterly bizarre, utterly bizarre. In a way, I think he was, forgiven for, for that because he wasn't caught out in racism he sort of said it he kind of presented it and the people were so embarrassed for him in a way I mean they were shocked and appalled and they sort of knew what he meant what, it, what he was sort of trying to say but it was so bizarre and it was a function of this function of this interview corporate publicity machine that, that film journalism is a part of these days I re yeah, I remember John Barnes sort of actually sort of praising him for, for coming out with it and saying, yeah. you know, yeah, because, yeah, you know, a guy in the 70s and 80s was racist. You know, that's not, you know, yeah. that's, that's not, not shocking, yeah. you know. No, I mean, he meant to, Liam Neeson Trump, meant, he meant to say was, isn't that bizarre? Isn't it crazy that I thought that? And yet he was saying that he actually did it. I, I mean, I'm not sure that I believe it, actually, to be honest. I'm not sure that he really did it, but it... it it, it was it was very bizarre. It was, as I say, it was a function of the, the exhausting film journalism hype PR military industrial complex. And it wasn't a, a fact, it wasn't a piece of information that had been elicited by journalism in the normal sense. In a way, it was a kind of glitch in the matrix. It was a breakdown where they just couldn't keep doing it anymore, doing it anymore, and just said sort of some silly thing that had occurred to them. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, do you think that, do you think this world of sort of PR, do you think that there's a, there's a point a little bit like uh, uh, the superhero movies and the Westerns in the past that where, where the wave will collapse, that we'll have to think of another way of doing this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is where, to return to my job for a moment, critics have to come in. They have to be the people who have to, they have to reassert some individual <laughs> critical sort of body of intelligence that exists independently of all this. And that doesn't necessarily, and as I say, I return to this because I want to say, this does not mean saying, aren't superhero movies awful? 
aren't they utterly awful? Because that's just the you're just going to end up the saying the same thing all the time. But I also, I think you have to you have to reassert your own privilege, and it's kind of a hard won privilege as a critic, as somebody who isn't anything to do with it, who doesn't have who doesn't uh, have to deal with PR people in mm. you. You, it's a it's a great privileged position to be in because you don't have to do this. You just watch the movies and say what you think, and you have to bring to it your own critical intelligence and your own your own hinterland, your backstory, uh, and you have to make it in. Also, you have to make it the pretext for your own prose performance, which in a way is something else you have to bear in mind. Uh, but that's, in a way, it's never been more important to do all that because otherwise. Uh, otherwise, uh, you, you you know, you kind of go along with everything. With the book, you're putting together reviews that you've you've done in the past, and you're and you're sort yeah. of um, sort of an anthology in a sense. Looking back over that work, did you did you sort of recognise the same uh, same voice, or did you did you sort of see your voice develop as as it as it went along? Um, that's a very good question. I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I sometimes look back on something I've written 20 years ago and think, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> I just think, A, I can't remember writing that, and B, God, that's actually pretty good. I don't, I don't look back and think, wow, oh, what a, you know, what a what a naive, unformed person that was. I mean, I think what happens is you 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 achieve a kind of knowledge or wisdom uh, and you become less in a way, less of a smart ass in a way, uh, at people's expense. It, one of the things that's, I think, happened recently, and I'm, I'm not sure whether this is a good or a bad thing, and I, I, don't know, I wonder what you think, John. Uh, it's become less easy for me, uh, and I think less easy for everyone, to do an old-fashioned, one-star, funny, takedown review. It's sort of less easy to do that now. It, it, was, it was kind of, it used to be, a thing that you could do. It was, and it was a very important thing that critics could do. They couldn't, you know, they shouldn't do it all the time because that would undermine the value of that particular brand, but they could do it if they wanted to. And the one star review, wow, you know, people in the spirit of Schadenfreude, if they saw a one star review, they would immediately go to that review and think, oh, this is, you know, let's settle in for some, you know, bloodshed. This is going to be amazing. Now it's, I find it maybe it's as a result of getting older. I, I don't do that as much. Um, not because I've, I hope it's not because I've gone soft in any way. I know, I hope it's not because I've, that I've fallen for this line of, well, you know, these filmmakers, they work bloody hard, you know, and don't just slag them off. Um, because I think it doesn't matter how hard they've worked, really, if, if they've worked hard or, or didn't work at all. If the end result is a good movie or a bad movie, that's... I always think of it as a pilot. I always think uh, I, I, if the pilot crashes the plane as yeah. soon as after takeoff, I don't care that I couldn't even get it off the ground. It's like, yeah, exactly. well, you know... <laughs> that pilot has worked bloody hard, you know? Yeah, you know, <laughs> his takeoffs were perfect. It's but... perfect. <laughs> good. Just, you know, and he's had a very hard time emotionally before he... Fucking crash it! Yeah, exactly, exactly. It sort of doesn't matter uh, what what's happened, what happens behind the scenes. It doesn't matter, and yet so much of film journalism is concerned with thinking that it does matter. Of course, they think that they have to bring that vast co commitment, professional and writerly commitment, saying, "Wow, look what happened behind the scenes! Look at all this! You know, these people who have gone into the making of this film, and in a way." The, the critic is concerned only with the surface, only with the 
the millimeter thick quality of the screen itself, what is actually on, on, the, on the screen and, and affecting not to mind or care about what's happened behind it. But it is harder because you can blow up in your face more easily, really. And there, are, there is, if you attack a film, there's always a constituency that can, can, can be drawn together on social media to counterattack you. One example is a movie which, whose success kind of baffles me, and maybe there are people listening to this who think it's great, uh, and if you do, then good luck to you. But I thought it was terribly bland. It's Disney's animation, Encanto. Now, I sat through this, I thought it was as if it had been written by committee. It seemed bizarrely strained. I didn't, be I didn't believe, I mean, it's absurd to talk about believing any of the characters in an animation called Encanto, but I didn't believe, I didn't identify with them. I thought it was, I, I thought it was utterly without heart or real emotional life. I thought it had a, one or two good songs and that was it. Now I had to say that, and of course I've been, you know, I, ever from that day to this, of course, I've been attacked from by Encanto fans. And you realize that, well, before this, before this, you you know, that, that constituent of opinion would have been silent. It would have had no platform mm. at all. Now it does. And that's a good thing because there is a new, this has happened in my professional lifetime. A democratization of opinion has, has um, revolutionized in a way, the way in which we think about films uh, or certainly revolutionized the way we sort of write about them. But it's meant that you have to be a lot tougher uh, and you have to stick to your guns and you have to realize that nobody gets the last word anymore. Mm. That in a way, social media and Twitter is full of people fanatically trying to have the last word. They're trying to, trying to appropriate to themselves that prerogative that used to only exist in print media, which is you as the privileged person working for a newspaper, whatever, you get to have the last word, you get to say it and nobody talks back to you. Um, now, a lot of the neurosis on social media is people wanting to win, wanting mm. definitively and resoundingly to win the argument. How dare you not love something that I love? How dare you love something that I hate? You know? Yeah, yeah. That's it's it's um, it's it's it goes on and on and on. And partly part of your part of the sort of Jedi Zen that you have to cultivate. <laughs> part of the sort of Ben Kenobi saying you have to cultivate as a critic is realizing there it is, live and let live. You've had your say. I mean, that's why, you know, I think, well, look, I still have this, this what the Americans used to call a bully pulpit. I, st mm. I have this privilege thing, I'm allowed to say it. Now, I can't just indulge in a shouting match with somebody from now until doomsday about who gets to win. I, I just can't do it. I, I totally agree. I think uh, this is where doing a PhD in literature comes into its own, yeah. because I had exactly that same experience. I, my my mind was on the romantics, so and uh, Shelley and laughter. I, I told you uh, yeah. when we were talking Troms. Well, I actually went away and read that sonnet. After that. <laughs> that was very, it was a sonnet, was it? I yeah, remember. yeah, to laughter. Yeah, I was I was to laughter, which uh, I was fascinated by it. I had no idea of the exact, well, I'm, I'm not an expert by any means, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that, I mean, it, it's a very interesting point. Shelley thought that laughter was abusive or sneering or mm. derisive laughter. And he hated the idea of laughter. Laughter wasn't joyous or celebratory. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was always denigrating. It was denigrating and he thought it was 
something to be um, something to be uh, deprecated. And there is, I, I think it has something to say about our culture in a way, the idea of what laughter is. But the thing that, that sort of connects to what you were saying earlier about, uh, uh, about how criti criticism has democratized and everything is that when I was doing my PhD, I had a very similar experiences of going to parties and things and talking to people and people saying, why are you doing that? What possible utility does this have? And they were very exercised because I was getting money from the British Academy in order to do yeah. it. I mean, you know, I was being paid to do it. And so they were they uh, and yet i it was a great training in really pretending to care about something that ultimately you know isn't of yeah. any sort of and and that as a critic i you know i write my one star reviews and my five star reviews and those are the two types of reviews you have to convince people you utterly care about it yeah, yeah. but when in the in for me in the ultimate scheme of things i kind of don't mind if you love if your five star and my one star swap places it, it you know i mean i'd love to love everything uh, i I'd, I'd absolutely love to do that but it just doesn't happen and i have to be sort of honest with that and the hardest reviews to write are actually the three and the, the three yeah. and the four stars you know they are i mean to be honest that's another great crisis is you realize if you write a review it's like a three star review of a decent film that's come out, like maybe that's a foreign movie, a subtitle movie, you write it and you think, Jesus, who is going to read this review? Especially if it's not even particularly in depth. It's like sort of three or 400 words. You think, mm. who is going to read this film? Who is going to, who's going to read this review? Who is going to watch this movie as a result of watching this? You have to think there must be something here. Some, and, you, and you have to force yourself. I, I need to isolate that glint, that glint of the diamond in the rock somewhere even if it even if that doesn't necessarily mean it's a brilliant film but it's something of interest here to you and that's where you that's where i think uh, having a background that isn't in film journalism a lot of people come into film journalism have nothing done nothing else in their lives i mean mm. i've done i've done quite a lot else in a way I, as i say i wrote i suppose in my humble way when i was a, when i was in my 20s academic work and then i was a general journalist uh and I think that was was very good for me, actually, in a way that I wasn't that I wasn't literally. You know, I didn't start out at twenty one and wrote for Sight and Sound from from that day to this. That would have been, I think, that would have been enervating. I think as a as a writer. What about I mean, enervating as a writer? What about this? Uh, this is something I have when I'm writing reviews, especially in a sort of. Um, uh... Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A 
festival situation where I'm writing maybe two or three reviews a day. Is there a, is there a point where you think I'm doing, I'm sort of almost, I, I find myself slotting into a template and, you know, I'm doing paragraph one, synopsis, uh, you know, <laughs> music, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's mention the cinematography. Yeah, a kind of, particularly, particularly in that so much is expected of you as a critic now, so much just, and when I say so much, I don't mean so much in terms of quality, I mean quantity. It used to be when you, when a critic went to a festival, I mean, it was a very, very laid back affair. I mean, I, when I used to start going to, to, to Cannes or Venice, I would just be ambling about, going to see movies, and all would, that would be expected of you were like roundups. And mm. they were brilliant. Writing a roundup. Oh, my God, I have such a nostalgic wave of joy comes over me. Thinking, I had an ice cream. Good old days of writing roundups, you know. No, now, there's no nonsense about roundups. If you see a movie, you've got to run out and write, if necessary, on your phone, a, a solid sort of 400 word review right away uh, and, and file it again from your phone. And as I say, when I realized that I could do that, I could write on my phone, part of me was thrilled. I thought, my God, I've, I'm like Terminator 2. I've evolved into this. <laughs> cyborg figure with my iPhone welded to my hand. I don't have to go back to my flat or my hotel room and open up my computer and write. I can do it now. I could sit down uh, at a cafe or even on a stairwell in the in the theater and write it now. And I was kind of proud of myself in a way for my battle-hardened professionalism. Now I think, oh my God, there's no way back now. Now everybody expects that and there's no there's no way back. But yeah. Again, you have to you have to be on your guard against it, um, mm. uh, and you have to you have to realize that you 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 have to somehow keep in mind the public that you're writing for or that you want to write for. Uh, it isn't just the sort of seven or eight journalists that you know will read it and will uh, and you know have also seen the same film as you. You have to kind of pitch it to the the public at home. Uh, but in a way, you have to balance it with your expect with your expertise, a sense of being immersed in the the immersion that you have. Paradoxically, that's part of why the 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 the, the laity, if I can use that term, are supposedly interested in what you're saying. I think also I find writing is is very much a form of thinking. So it's usually when I'm writing the review that I actually realize it's not like I I have a view of the film and I write down my view. I write the review so that I have a view of the film. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I, I, I usually know, I, 99.9% .9 of the time, I know what I think and I know how much I like a film. People think, do you, do, do you not know until you write it how many stars, for example, you're going to be given something like that. Uh, I, always, I always know how much I like it. Uh, but the process of writing, I absolutely agree. The process of writing is when you start realizing, oh yeah, there was that thing and there was that thing and there was that connection. And I don't think I would have, I, I have to put my fingers on the keyboard before that process happens. Yeah, totally. I had a situation, uh, well, a few years ago when The King was shown at Venice that I wrote, wrote a review immediately upon seeing it. And then I got commissioned to do another couple of pieces on it. So I ended up writing for it like three or four times. And I think my initial review was a sort of three star. Yeah, it's okay. You know, but yeah. by the time I'd finished writing about it, I'd gone into such depth. I was thinking, this is a really good film. This is really right. well done. What did you say the Duke? Or... No, the King, the, the King. Tim Timothy Chalamet uh, version of uh, Henry V. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought you said the digit. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know the film you mean. Yeah. Oh no, the Duke I didn't like at all. The Duke, I, I, I haven't written anything other than the first. My first, I found it a very Brexity movie. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> it's true. I think it is. It's also, I think it's very Ealing, actually, that film. That's, I think, why I liked it. I think it had that kind of neo Ealing feel. And I had this image of what, what, what would it be like if it was being made in, this, in the 60s? I think they would have got Stanley Holloway to play Jim Broadbent's role. And that, weirdly, I think that's sort of why I liked it. Isn't that maybe a horrifying thought, though, that Ealing is essentially a form of Brexit? That, that um, you know, if you moved, the, the the years along the passport yeah. to Pimlico would be passport a is a little bit yes I mean it is a little bit like that but as I say I I prefer to think of Ealing in its higher mode of kind hearts really than mm. than not that I not that I don't love them in a way but I think it's the fact that he's talking about free TV licenses or not want of 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 dismantling his TV so he doesn't have to get the BBC. Uh, as I say, we, we, we're all on a, all of us liberals are on a hair trigger for that sort of thing, thinking he must be, and there, there is something Brexity about it, but there's something, there's always been something Brexity about the British and their sort of bloody mindedness. I mean, there was something- 51%, yeah, There was something, I mean, I've, I've said this before, there was something Brexity about rejecting Winston Churchill in 1945. I think there was something Brexity about that kind of cussedness and said, no, fuck you. I don't like you anymore. I just, because I want to wipe the smile off your face. Um, I think it's it's partly that as well. Yeah, stick that in your cigar uh, and smoke it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what it is as well. I mean, that's uh, that's partly what it's about. But yes, I I, I I don't know quite how we've got onto the Duke. But yes, there is. <laughs> I actually said this in my piece. There is something Brexity about it, un undoubtedly. But it was it's a kind of instant Brexit in that. The, the Brexit that we now know has been controlled and directed by precisely those elitist forces that the that the Brexit movement affects to be opposed to. That, at any rate, Kempton Bunton's Brexitiness was at least his own invention. Mm. At least it was a genuine, a genuine kind of dissent. Yeah, it's kind of Kaiser Soze, the 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 whole you know, down down with the elites. Said it the elites. Amazing, well, it is sort of a down with the elites. You could get and you could get away with stealing. <laughs> I think you get away with more in those days. And it's just typified by the fact that you could actually walk into a national gallery and steal a painting, <laughs> and also yeah. legally get away with it as well. What about when you? I mean, this is this is something that I think you, you, you sort of bring up as well in the book of uh, when you're looking back on things, are there any times where your judgment has, uh, you, you look at it and you think, ah, no, I, I totally got the wrong, wrong yeah. end of the stick there. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah, 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 many times. Um, I would say uh, a number of times, I would say definitely. I definitely got it wrong. And this is a sort of silly film in a way to invoke, but I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Is The Devil Wears Prada. Mm. When I thought The Devil Wears Prada at first, I was very sneery and sort of, uh, what a load of rubbish. Actually, The Devil Wears Prada is a really good film. It is a mm. really well-made, well-acted, uh, good-natured, watchable, excellent as an excellent movie. I, I find myself straining for words like popcorn movie or entertaining movie, but that's the kind of condescension in a way. It's, mm. it, it's a very good film. And I think I was too toffee-nosed to really appreciate that. Um, the other film that I'm sorry to say, I, I think I played a rather unfortunate role in its denigration was Jane Campion's In the Cut, which mm. 
I, I kind of put a downer on that film at the time. Um, and I'm ashamed of myself for doing that because there was, I mean, I'm not, still not sure that it's a masterpiece, but it was a, it was a good film with some staggering things in it, some brilliant things in it. Mainly, I think Meg Ryan's orgasm scene. Looking back on that, I thought, what amazing, thrilling audacity for Meg Ryan to sort of, to grab hold of what people know about her, which is her famous fake orgasm scene, mm -hmm. and to do a real one. I mean, that's brilliant. It's audacious. It's thrilling. It's to take that and shove it in your face. Now, I'm doing it for real. You know I'm faking it, but I'm supposedly doing it for real. Of course you know about my famous fake one from When Harry Met Sally. Now I'm doing it for real. And what have you got to say about that? And what I should have said about that was, my God, Meg Ryan, brilliant. Fucking mm. brilliant. Good on you. This is amazing. What, what a fascinating kind of situationist event you have made out of cinema. Instead, I'm sorry to say it, I was at the notorious critic screening where I think there were two people in the, in the audience, me and Michael Parkinson. Now, I walked out of the film, I didn't know what to say. I caught Michael Parkinson's eye and I said, well, I'm not sure about that or something like that. Mm. Something better, wanky thing for me to say. And he kind of nodded to me in, in his sort of gruff way and went, no, no I'm not sure about it either. Mm. And I've got a horrible feeling that I confirmed him in his grumpiness. And of course, he went on to do one of his most catastrophic, you know, I started by talking about his wonderful interview with Alec Guinness. Then, of course, he went on to do a catastrophic one with, with Meg Ryan, a horrible interview. Yes, I remember that. It was so uncomfortable. Such horrible interview. And I say that I like Michael Parkinson. I've, I've met him a, a number of times. I used to do his Radio 2 show when he, when he did that. And I like him. And I think he's been a force for good. But that was... Uh, a, a terrible moment and I'm sorry to say I think I may have played uh, my own role in in that uh, in in that in the in the denigration of that film because it was a brilliant bold kind of lightning raid on public sensibilities that film and I'm ashamed of myself that I didn't respond with any form of generosity or open or open-mindedness to it and i'm afraid i didn't i just sort of shrugged and, and like it. it was also sort of coming you know in the wake of a load of sort of glossy sort of sex thrillers like yeah. you know basic instinct and 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 there was a whole series of body of evidence with madonna and 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 it came up and it, it was it was literally dirtier you know it was literally yeah. more um visceral than any of those so yeah I, I was going to think and the other thing is I think I just got off reading the novel which mm. I think I it, sometimes that's a good thing sometimes it's a bad thing because I really I, I like the novel uh, and sometimes when you sit down to a film immediately after having read the novel you've already invested in it in a different way and you sometimes can't you sometimes can't sort of re you can't sometimes can't recalibrate I have the same, absolutely it's the same thing. I've got to revisit Silence by Martin Scorsese because I actually bought the novel and read it during the day and then went to see the film at night. And it was just the, it was just the wrong way of doing it because it was essentially like watching the film twice, you know, once right. after, straight after the other. I, I needed at least some space between those two things for me to properly appreciate it. I just thought, oh God, I'm sitting in the novel again. I've, I've already yeah. just spent four, four hours reading it, you know? Yeah, you can't really, yeah, you can't, you've got to be very careful. I mean, you, you, people always say that, well, you know, have you read the novel or not? You know, if you haven't mm. read the novel, then you're, you're 
you know, you're not qualified to talk about the movie. And I always think, well, that's not how it's going to be presented to the public. The public are, are going to be allowed to buy tickets and walk into the cinema without showing the QR code, proving they've read the book. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a tricky one because I think what happens is it can not merely muddle you, but cause you to invest in the, in the existence of, of its intellectual property in the wrong way. You, you mm. tend to think, well, if I like the book, then I can't like the film because I've already committed to liking the book in my head. So I, in a way, I have to be very guarded or even, or even kind of uh, even antipathetic mm. to restate, to, re, to reinforce my fanhood for the book. Mm. What about flipping that earlier question? Because it's always asked, you know, what did you get wrong that you didn't see the, the classic or the great film and you gave it a bad mark? What about films that you sort of thought were absolutely amazing? And then you a couple of years down the line, you watched again and thought, oh, dear, did I really set this? I must have had a good lunch that day or I must have you know, been in a good mood. I, that's a good question. I, 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 there aren't many films like that. I can't really think mm. of a film where... I've got totally got it wrong like that, that I've really loved a film. I thought, actually, no, that's rubbish. I've seen a couple of films where I've, I've given five stars to, and I think, you know what, it's a good movie, but I don't know about five stars. I, mm. Maybe about Nicholas, I mean, I, I'm an old fan of Nicholas Winding Refn, the dark master himself. Right. And I'm glad that I took against the consensus against his film, Only God Forgives. Uh, which is a kind of gross out, freak out film, sort of inspired a bit by Taxi Driver. Uh, and I'm glad I gave it a good review. I'm not sure. I think my review would have been a bit more nuanced now, but I'm glad I, this isn't really an answer to your question, is it? Because I'm sort of saying, but in a way, I'm it... saying no, I was right. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Fuck you. I loved it. <laughs> I'm always right. The late film critic, the late Alexander Walker, always, always got angry when anybody asked him this question. He, he always, when anybody, when anybody asked him, have you ever, do you think you've ever changed your mind about, have you ever got this wrong? He always heard that question. And what he heard in his head is, have you ever been defeated in an argument with other journalists? And he would always hit the fucking ceiling. No, I've never, oh. I have to say, I've got, I, even now, I, I'm, I'm reluctant in a way to call them. But I, I don't. I honestly don't think I have. I mean, I, 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 I'm aware of, I'm aware of people thinking I must have lost my marbles in a way. I, I tend to praise comedies because I think I went through a long phase where I thought of myself as the only critic that liked comedies, mm. and all the other critics didn't like real comedies, or they would bafflingly decide that reasonably funny, but not that funny art house films were hilarious. Either. Oh, I had that with Tony Edelman that I went to see again with uh, uh, that same film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and this is where the sort of context comes into it. I couldn't get in to see the first screening of that, can. And, and so I went to see it the day after. So I went to see it after hearing everybody saying, it's the funniest film ever made. Yeah. And I watched it and thought, it's a mildly amusing yeah. bit I mean, of I, cringe I, comedy. I, I liked this film. I didn't like it because it was funny. I didn't think it was funny exactly. I mean, I think there are humorous elements in it, of course, but it's not, let's be real, it's not funny. Whenever, whenever a critic says to me, it's really funny, I always say, really? Like The Simpsons? Funny like that? And they almost always go, uh, no, no, not, not actually funny like The Simpsons, no. 
Oh, my wife's thinking, funny asshole, funny like Arrested Development, funny like any episode of Arrested Development. And this isn't, and this isn't necessarily to slag off the film because it doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't, films don't have to be funny. You don't have to sell me a film. You don't have to sell me Tony Edmund on the basis that it's funny. You can sell me funny that it's intriguing or bizarre or, or ingenious, all these other things. You don't have to say that it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, there are things that I think are, I often put on the YouTube clip of the desk pop from the other guys of Will Ferrell, big trick as a, as a corporate into firing his, firing his weapon at the ceiling because that's a traditional thing that police officers do in the, in the station house. I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the great gunshot scenes in American cinema because in a way it's, it's brilliant, it's surreal because it forces you to look at what a transgressive event firing a gun actually is in the real world. In the movie, people fire guns all the time uh, and it's always as normal as lighting a cigarette. In, in the real world, of course, firing a gun is the most transgressive and horrifying thing that can ever happen. Police officers can go through 40 years careers without ever having done it. The brilliance about the other guys of the surrealist brilliance of Will Ferrell sitting there and going, bang, <laughs> is that it's one of the very few times in American cinema where the script acknowledges what a horrifying event it is to hear a gunshot, indoor, especially indoors. And so basically because of that, I gave the other guys five stars. Basically. I was so thrilled, and I still am. I kind of don't regret it, although it's, it's I don't know whether it's a five-star movie because the rest of it probably doesn't quite live up to that. But it's a very funny film. And Mike, Mark Wahlberg is sort of amazing. I'm, I'm fascinated by Mark Wahlberg because he's always the same. He's, he's one of the most unactory, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant performer, but I never get the, he never acts, he never puts anything on. He's just, he just does that, but he can play comedy and absolutely dead straight. He's unique in a way because he, he you can see him in a comedy and he will play comedy and be really good, be per or at any rate, perfectly good. He was excellent in the other guys, or he will be in a straight film, or it would be something like it in Uncharted, where he kind of does his Mark Wahlberg thing. And in The Departed, he was very good as well. He yeah. was, yes, yes, that's true. And that's, but that's kind of a comedy role. He's he's just yeah. turns up and swears at everybody. I love the other guys. I'm I I I think the wit the whisper fight in the funeral. Yeah, that's he's, he's absolutely just funny. <laughs> So funny, so funny, brilliant. Yes, <laughs> I've already gathering round and nobody yeah. notices them. It's absolutely it's so good. But you see, that's what I mean. It is really funny. It's mm. actually funny, it, mm. as opposed to humorous or comic or like that sort of. But it's actually funny in that it will actually get a laugh at the time. I think um, comedy and horror both have a similar thing, though, where there's a because it's such a visceral and emotional experience, you know, you physically burst out laughing and you hurt from laughing yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And it's also something that you could just chop off at the knees by saying, I didn't laugh once. And it's so, so, it's so vulnerable and fragile comedy. And the yeah. same with horror, you know, you could just say, well, I didn't find it scary. And that's it. The raison d'etre is, is dead, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, it's one of those things that sometimes horror, I sometimes not sure how to gauge my reaction to other people's praise of a horror film, particularly real horror fans. Sometimes horror fans will, you know, something like Fright Fest, a, a film that's gone down really well. People coming out of the screening aren't pale and in a state of shock. They're not saying, Christ, I, I was horrified by that film. They say, they're almost as if, as if they've seen a comedy. They've seen a great comedy. And it's sort of the same response. And it's weird because very often with horror, 
actually, it's very rare to be horrified exactly. I mean, I, I have been horrified quite rarely by cinema. I have been horrified, but not in a way by horror films. I've been horrified by something like Threads about a nuclear war. Oh, and God. That's, there's, there's a film that made me. <laughs> see, there, there is a film. It's, it's not a horror film, exactly, as you understand it, but it is genuinely horrifying, whereas mm. the, the number of times I've been genuinely horrified by a film, even with, I mean, I've you know, it's closer to say you're terrified than horrified in a way, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, something like it's a great, I mean, sort of scared or unnerved by, by films. It's closer to say you were just, just it's tilted you one millimeter. Mm. In a way, that's all you can expect from a film. If it genuinely has an effect on you, it genuinely has a, yeah, I don't, I don't need it to freak me out. I don't, in a way, I don't need it to blow my head off, but I certainly need it to have an effect on me. Mm. I think. I mean, I think I watched that rec the recent remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the the original is one of the films that I've you know terrified me when I watched it, and I still get terrified watching it. But the remake it reminds me of that thing you just said about Fright Fest. Is it feels like an action movie where they just dress up in horror stuff in order, yeah. to, and, and it, it, there's a number of kills, and yeah. there's a certain the set pieces, but you know it doesn't have anything like the effect the original had on. Yeah. And I think it's almost that they don't expect it to or want mm. it to, and that there's a quite a substantial fan base that doesn't necessarily need that. Uh, they don't, they one way don't want to be surprised. It, it's it's like the Scream franchise. It's 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 a sort of nod and a wink, and we all know why we like it. I think sometimes I really want something else from. I mean, I I got it. I, I would say I got it from Get Out, Jordan Peele's Get Out, in the way that I would call it. As, perhaps more of a scary movie than a horror film. I don't know if there's any gradations there, but I genuinely was unnerved by it. And I think it's a movie that genuinely wanted, wanted to upset you in a way, in a way that some, some horror movies, even quite extreme horror movies, don't want to upset the apple cart that much. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Listen, Peter, I want to also to have, I want to have a, a recommended book so obviously your book is recommended. We're recommending it. But oh, what yes. about a film book that you would recommend uh, that you've read? Oh, my God. Um, if I'd have known that you were going to ask this, I would have uh, prepared myself much more carefully. I'm going to look at my... Uh, um, Peter my... is now perusing his bookshelf. <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk about... Um, uh, I, a film I loved, a book I loved, which was Matthew Sweet's Shepperton Babylon about right. the, the British British cinema industry, a book which came out before, I think it's fair to say before the Talking Pictures TV channel in a way made that genre, kind of revived that genre, made us think that there's an ocean of films out there that we'd sort of forgotten about. And I think that's, a, that's an absolutely terrific book. I still love Jonathan Rosenbaum's Movie Wars uh, about what constitutes Boovy history. I think he's a brilliant. Uh, let me see if I can find the not. Hang on. Sorry, I'm running away to find these books. Uh, Movie Wars by Jonathan Rosenbaum. Absolutely brilliant. And the other one is, if you can bear it, I'm going to. I'm going to get. Yeah, this yeah. Book. Go for it. Go for it. Well, wouldn't you just know it? The, the film, the book that I wanted to, I wanted to get out of the shelf of the shelves. I can't find now. That's just typical of me. But a brilliant book about early Hollywood. I know everybody talks about this book, but I would talk about it is Neil Gabler's An Empire of Their Own, How the Jews Invented Hollywood. Right. It, it is an amazing book um, because it talks about the, the, 
the kind of year zero of Hollywood. It's as gripping as a, as a thriller. And it also brings you back to these words that you use all the time, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, Paramount, all these words that have just, or Disney, all these words at Columbia, all these words that, you know, you, you forget, it's like hearing, it's like walking down the street and seeing Specsavers, Greggs, Marks and Spencer. These are the words that we've kind of grown up with. And yet they were real people. Amazing, you know, MGM. Gosh, what, what did that, Louis B. Mayer, Sam Goldwyn, Harry Cohn, all these amazing figures, these incredible figures who invented something out of nothing. Uh, and because nobody realized how big of a deal it was going to be, they were allowed to get away with it and had it their own way for, you know, for such a long time. It's, it's like those names are part of the landscape. I mean, literally, yeah. when you see the Warner Brothers, it's sort of painted on the big yeah. water water tank. Yeah, and it's almost a kind of it's a gobsmacked to realize. Do you know there were actually Warner Brothers brothers? brothers. <laughs> they, were, they were actually brothers. They, there was you know, more than one. There <laughs> was more than one. They were like real people that, in, that owned the studio. Do you know that? And they kind of invented a particular type of film, and that was their that were our idea. Amazing, yeah, amazing. Well, you mentioned uh, right at the uh, towards the beginning of the conversation uh, a woman from uh, who wrote for City Lights. Uh, City uh, Limits, yeah, Judith Williamson. Now that's another. That's, I I loved her book. It, it's it's been reprinted, but I think not not as good as the original first edition. It's called Decoding Advertisements by right. Judith Williamson. Uh, I recently have bought that book. It's been republished the. It's, it's not a bad edition, but the plates, that is to say the, the reproductions of the advertisements themselves isn't as good as I, as I remembered it. Mm. But it is a brilliant book. And it's the first time I was ever aware of something that was called media studies was this book where basically Judith Williamson laid out a series of ads, uh, the kind of ads that you'd see in the Sunday Times magazine in the sort of 1970s, ads mm. for cars or ads for cigarettes or something like that and literally deconstructed them in the most user-friendly way to show this is how this advertisement is trying to mess with your head and it is absolutely brilliant um it's a it's a it's a brilliant book she's she's absolutely brilliant well uh, were there any well obviously there were uh critics that you read you know prior to yourself becoming a critic that yeah. that sort of influenced you or that that had a you kind of thought well that's i will i not necessarily i want to do that style or anything but i i want to have that effect on people i want to have the effect that they had on me well i mean they are the the, the same old names that that you know i remember when i was growing up julie birchall who is uh, an incredibly discredited figure nowadays right or wrong but back in the day in the 70s and 80s Julie Birchall was 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 the was where it was happening, and she mm. she's still. I mean, you could read we could reread something by Julie Birchall and realize there's somebody who wanted to shake things up, who wanted to insult you and wind you up, uh, and realize and and make you think you're not here just to be soothed. You're here to be freaked out and and sort of irritated, upset. Um, Clive James, obviously, everybody says the same thing. The Clive James, the TV columns from the Observer. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, and I, it, it, one of the great, I think, underrated classics of English literature is his 
sort of semi-fictionalized autobiography, Unreliable Memoirs, mm. which mm. is a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. It's, it's absolutely superb. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the writer who I later on, I think hero worshiped and loved as, I've, as, as, as I don't think I've ever loved any writer is, is Christopher Hitchens, mm. uh, who I met and knew a little bit back in the, back in the day. I, I knew him a little bit. I knew him and his, his wife a little bit. Um, again, there's a, a writer who is magnificent in their absolute commitment. And, and partly it's the sheer output. It's extraordinary uh, volume of stuff that they were writing. But also I think he's a writer who perhaps uniquely among writers was never content just to be in the stands looking on. It was as if he was taking part in almost everything he wrote. He was, he was meeting, confronting these people, as it were, politicians or writers or these great A-list figures and confronting them on equal terms. And I loved Hitchens. Uh, I loved him as a, as a writer and a polemicist. I mean, he, he's inspiring. He, you read something by Hitchens and you want, you want to be like him. I mean, there's a whole generation of us who wanted to be like Hitchens. Mm -hmm. and never but we certainly are more productively wanted to raise our game, raise it to 200%, 300% over and over again. I, I, I would say Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens and his, his book. Well, it's almost any of his collections of collection journalism is, is worth reading. Mm -hmm. and, uh, his, um, his book about the Anglo-American special relationship of, of 30 years ago. I forget what it's called. Um, oh, where is it? Sorry. I just ran away to another part of my route to look. It's called Blood, Class and Nostalgia. All right. And it is, again, it is really neglected, that book now. It's, it's 30 years old, that book, but it's one of his most brilliant books. And it's, if you're interested in the, the special relationship uh, and what, whatever that means, uh, that, is a, that is an absolute, that's an absolute must. I'm halfway through um, Martin Amos's Inside Story, which has uh, Hitchens on the cover as um, oh, yeah. not yeah, fan. Yeah, yeah. I love, I went through, uh, with the thing about Martin Amos, I went through what we all went through with Martin Amos, or at least all men went through with Martin Amos. Women are, for understandable reasons, kind of alienated, I think, from Martin Amos. And I, I, it's only now that I've understood why. I, I, I love Martin Amos. I mean, I still, I, I read Money when it came out. He's kind of great magnum opus. I thought it was great. And I watched, in a way, in a way like Woody Allen, he seemed to go off the boil mm. almost at the same time. And we all went off the boil as well. We all sort of stopped loving Martin Amos. And in a way he was, he was a part of an era when literature and literary fiction was more of a big deal in Britain than it, than it is now. Mm. Mm. You know, a new, a new novel by Martin Amos or a new uh, or a review of a novel by Martin Amos or, or something that he'd written was, was more of a big deal. Inside Story, I, it baffled me. Uh, he, I, I was baffled and exasperated by it because it didn't seem to be, he wasn't being honest. He wasn't saying exactly what had happened in his life. He's still, I think, rather culpably obsessed with this woman that broke his heart, if that's what happened. But I think he kind of owes it to himself and owes it to his readers to say exactly what was going on there instead of making up this nonsense uh, about what supposedly, I don't know, was she a sex worker really? You know, is, or is that just another one of his bizarre retaliatory fictions that he put into all his books about this woman that apparently broke his heart? I, fine, I, I'd rather read the, the fictional version if that's what it's going to have to take, but this pseudo auto fiction 
at which he hasn't really mastered the art of autofiction, or he looks like he's doing, well, that's, this is what all the kids are doing these days. I'll have to do some autofictional made up stuff along with it. And his sort of late flowering obsession with Christopher Hitchens, which mm. in, at the time we really didn't know about it. I didn't, I, I only knew about Christopher Hitchens much later and I wasn't aware of his close friendship with, with Amos at all. Mm. So anyway, there we are. That's what I think about Inzo's story. There's some interesting things in it, but I, I, I think I prefer his earlier memoir called Experience, which was yes. clear, more better rooted in things. But as, as I say, I mean, I, he, he, uh, I was reading a very interesting by Dorian Linsky the other day saying that he's gone from being, he's gone to being underrated now. You, you read it, wow, you know what? Martin Amos is still a brilliant writer sometimes. He really is. I'm intrigued to see what Jonathan Glazer is going to do with a zone of interest. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Peter, you have to go and uh, and you've been very kind with your time. Uh, so thanks so much for, for joining us. Okay, well, thank you so much, John. Thank you very much indeed. If anybody feels like buying my book, that's, that's going to be a real plus for me. Thank you. <laughs> So that was my conversation with Peter Bradshaw. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. We, we I think we had a really good uh, we had a really good chat, and we certainly we certainly went through a lot of subjects, and a lot of different films came up. There are some sort of films that keep coming up, uh, maybe like almost like Keystone films. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Star Wars seem to be the two films that are most frequently uh mentioned in the podcast if you uh have any suggestions for possible guests or you have any feedback that you want to give me you can uh well the dms are open on twitter or you can email me my email address is available on my twitter profile as well it's basically dr john t with a h at gmail.com next week i will be talking to jonathan rigby uh the author of euro gothic amongst others but all that remains to do is thank Elliot Atkins for the music, providing the brilliant John Carpenter slash Sergio Leone uh, music uh, for, for the podcast. Ali Howard for the art. And thanks, of course, to you for listening.
late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 